Well, our main Bible reading is taken from 1 Kings 9, and we're going to read from verse 10 to the end of chapter 10. Kings 9, reading from verse 10. At the end of 20 years, in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, and Hiram of king of Tyre had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress timber and gold, as much as he desired. King Solomon gave to Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. But when Hiram came from Tyre to see the cities that Solomon had given them, him they did not please him. Therefore he said, What kind of cities are these that you have given me, my brother? So they are called the land of Kabul to this day. Hiram had sent to the king 120 talents of gold. And this is the account of forced labor that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord and his own house and the Milo, the wall of Jerusalem and Hazar and Megiddo and Gezar. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezar and burned it with fire and had killed the Canaanites who lived in the city, and had given it as a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. So Solomon rebuilt Gezar. And Lower Beth-horon, and Baalath, and Tamar, in the wilderness, in the land of Judah. And all the store cities that Solomon had, and the cities for his chariots, and the cities for his horsemen, and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, in all the land of his dominion. All the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who were not the people of Israel, their descendants who were left after them in the land, who the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction, these Solomon drafted to be slaves, and so they are to this day. But the people of Israel, Solomon made no slaves. They were the soldiers, they were his officials, his commanders, his captains, his chariot commanders and his horsemen. These were the chief officers who were over Solomon's work. 550 who had charge of the people who carried on the work. But Pharaoh's daughter went up from the city of David to her own house that Solomon had built for her. Then he built the Milo. Three times a year, Solomon used to offer up burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar that he built to the Lord, making offerings with it before the Lord, so he finished the house. King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Ezion-Gebar, which is near Iloth, on the shore of the Red Sea, in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent with the fleet his servants, seamen, who were familiar with the sea, together with the servants of Solomon. They went to offer and brought from there gold, 420 talents, and they brought it to King Solomon. Now when the Queen Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to uh, test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. When the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, 
the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord. There was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report I, I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants. Who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great, great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Moreover, the fleet of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought from Ophir a very great amount of almug, wood, and precious stones. And the king made of the almug wood supports for the house of the Lord, for the king's house, also lyres and harps for the singers. No such almug wood has come or been seen to this day. King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all that she desired, whatever she asked, besides what was given her by the bounty of King Solomon. So she turned and went back to her own land with her servants. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Besides that which came from the explorers and from the business of the merchants and from all the kings of the west and from the governors of the land, King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield and he made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three miners of gold went into each shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps and the throne had a round top. And on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrests. While twelve lions stood there, one on each end of a step on the six steps, the like of it was never made in my, any kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. For the, Lord, for the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come, bringing gold, silver, ivory apes, and peacocks. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses and mules, so much year by year. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities, with the king in Jerusalem, the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kew. The king's traders received them from Kew at a price. 
A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Well, in a moment, we're going to have a look at some of that passage. And before we do, there's just a few things to mention. The first is there'll be a question time at the end. So you can ask me about anything in that passage, maybe things we don't cover, or maybe we're just going to stick around this topic that we're going to focus in on today. But whatever it is, I want you to know the questions are there. The opportunity will be there, so you can be thinking and knowing that that's coming up, so you can be formulating those questions uh, in your minds. Another thing to mention is the um, sermon outlines that are there for you to use and abuse at your will. Obviously... They're there if they're helpful, but ignore them if they're not. And most importantly, let's ask God to help us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this remarkable uh, account of the Queen of Sheba as she comes to visit your anointed king and how impressed she is by him and you. We thank you that as we read of her testimony, happy are your men, happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. We thank you that they are happy because you rule over them, um, above your king, as your king rules under you. Pray, Lord, as we reflect on these things, we might see how we live in a much greater version of this story because we serve your risen king, King Jesus. Amen. Well, I hope that prayer's not giving away where we're going. (laughs) A refrain that runs through John's Gospel is this. My hour has not yet come. One example, quite early doors, is in chapter 2 at the wedding of Cana, Jesus' mother points the servants to Jesus to solve the wine problem. And Jesus responds, My hour has not yet come. Later, when Jesus causes a stir in the temple with his teaching, John writes, These words he spoke in the treasury, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Twice, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman, The hour is coming, which of course implies it's coming, but it has not yet come. What could Jesus be talking about? Well, of course, from our vantage point, we know very well what he's talking about. When he speaks of the hour, he's referring to his death on the cross. That's the hour that hasn't come yet, but is coming. But how will Jesus know when the hour has come? What will be the sign that means Jesus knows that he is to lay down his life? Maybe Jesus doesn't need a sign. He is God, after all. So he knows precisely the time of the hour, and he's just waiting for that time to arrive. Or maybe this is why Jesus spends such a large amount of time in prayer. He was waiting to hear his father's audible voice. 
who would respond as and when the hour had come. Or maybe there would be a climatic, dramatic event that the father had told his son to look out for. That must be it. You know, a great thunderstorm, lightning. And then when that comes, that's when Jesus knows the hour has come. In John 12, verse 20, the bit that we read a moment ago, we're introduced to a group of Greeks, Gentiles, if you like. They're in Jerusalem, presumably because they are what's known as God-fearers. That is to say, the people of God were exclusively Jews. It would be odd for anyone other than Jews to serve God because God had chosen the Jews as his people and to be part of God's people was to be Jewish or to be an Israelite. If a Gentile did want to worship God, they would be able to worship him, but they'd have to do so from a distance. Or alternatively, they could effectively become a Jew. But ultimately, the people of God, Jesus' people, were exclusively Israelites. But for whatever reason, this group of Greeks had heard about Jesus, and they wanted to speak to him. Philip finds Jesus and tells him, Some Greeks have come to see you. To which Jesus responds with this. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's the last you hear of the Greeks. There's absolutely no suggestion at all that Jesus ever saw them. But what the Greeks' arrival does is trigger something that Jesus recognises as significant. When the Gentiles visit him, it means it's time for him to die on the cross. But why? It really isn't what we might expect. And yet there's clearly something of great significance found in the Gentiles seeking out the Jewish Messiah that means when it happens, Jesus knows his hour has come. Back in 1 Kings, Solomon has a visitor. The Queen of Sheba has heard of Solomon and she wants to see it all for himself. Now when we read through the account of the Queen of Sheba or rather when we read through the account of Solomon, we can dismiss the visit of the Queen of Sheba as a little bit of a filler. You know, it it bulks out the account. But as far as theological significance goes, well, it's a nice story to put in a Sunday school lesson. And yet, in reality, what's happening in this part of Solomon's account is actually huge. Huge. But to appreciate what's happening, we'll need to go back to Exodus 19. 
I'm going to read from Exodus 19, from verse 4. It says this, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God explains to Moses that the whole earth is his. Absolutely every nation, without exception, belongs to him. However, what he has done is distinguished one nation, Israel, and made them into his treasured possession. But there's a purpose behind this separation. He's separating them from all other nations so they can be a kingdom of priests. So in the same way the Levitical priesthood mediated between God and the Israelites, so the people of God, so that the people of God could relate to a holy God, Israel also takes on this role at a broader level, mediating between God and all the other nations. So what's happening here is Israel is to reflect God's character as they obey God's voice and keep God's commandments. And this will make an impression upon the people of the world as they see their behaviour, they will want to know the God who is so close to his people. And so they will visit Israel so they can discover more. And so when we come to the visit of the Queen of Sheba, what we have is a real high point in the history of Israel. What we've been seeing over the last few weeks is Solomon is at rest. God has made his enemies are a footstool for his feet. Solomon has sought wisdom so he can rule over God's people under God's rule. And the queen of Sheba, a Gentile queen, comes and presents gifts to the Messiah. Spices, gold, and precious stones. The king has such wisdom that Solomon was able to answer all of her questions. To the point where by the time Solomon has finished, he's quite overwhelmed. She'd really been quite dubious about the reports, but now she realised they were actually nowhere close to the reality. And so, verse 8, she speaks of how glad his subjects must be to be ruled by such a great king. Which goes, causes her to go on and bless God. Because he must be great, having installed such a great king. What we're seeing is how the behaviour of God's Messiah 
impacts how the world thinks about God. And when he obeys God and teaches his subjects to obey God, the nations look in and they praise God. But if the Messiah rebels against God, if the Messiah is disobedient and oppresses his people, and they too rebel against God, then the nations look in. That's when they profane God's name. And so Solomon's reign is the high point in Israel's history. So in 10.23 to 25, we read this. 10.23. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his mind. Every one of them brought his presence brought his present articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses and mules, so much year by year. Three of the most famous characters in the Bible they haven't got names. We can't actually be sure there were even three. One of the reasons they're so famous is because they feature in the nativity. They are the wise men. Now, nativities are not the most theological, reliable of sources. But you would think, since the wise men are so well known at least as Christians, would have a good idea of their significance. But do we? What's it all about? It really is a bizarre part of the account. Wise men from far away follow a star. The star settles over the stable. There's an awful lot made of the three gifts, but if you actually read Matthew's account, no significance to the gifts is given. He simply lists them, and then the gifts are forgotten. So what are we to understand of the wise men, or these kings from other nations, visiting this newborn baby? Well, could we find the answer in this account of the Queen of Sheba. The nameless and mysterious wise men who travel far following a star that leads them to the Jewish king come with gifts. And then they worship him. As abruptly as they arrive, they're gone, never to be mentioned again. But what's happening is it begins to help us build a picture of what this newborn king of the Jews will be like. Just as the kings of all the nations gathered to hear the wisdom of Solomon, so will the kings of the nations come 
and lay their treasures before this newborn king. But who does Jesus come for? It's commonly thought that Jesus comes exclusively for the poor and the needy. And a case can be made for this. You know, after all, Jesus heals the blind, the lame, and so on. But what becomes problematic is you've got characters like Zacchaeus, who was very rich. The family of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, very good friends of his, who were very well-to-do. He also spends an awful lot of time with the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. So what is it that all these people have in common? It's not that they're poor and needy. It is that they're Jewish. But then, it really shouldn't come as a surprise, should it? After all, he is the Jewish king. Now, this isn't to say that Jesus never speaks to Gentiles. There are some exceptions. So there's the centurion who requests that his servant be healed. But what's interesting here is, Jesus uses this event to expose the lack of belief in him from the Jewish people, his own people, compared to that of this remarkable Gentile centurion. There's the man with the legion of demons, the one where Jesus sends the legion into the pigs. Clearly, we're in a Gentile area, otherwise there wouldn't be any pigs. What's striking about this incident is Jesus normally tells people to follow him. What's bizarre about this is that the man begs Jesus to let him follow him, and Jesus sends him away. There's the Syrophoenician woman who asks for her daughter to be healed, to which Jesus, frankly, is quite rude. He responds with, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What becomes clear is that every time Jesus meets a Gentile, he communicates that he has first come to the Jews. And that for the time being, the Gentiles are still outside. And this is what makes John 12, from verse 20, so significant. At this point in Jesus' ministry... He's reached the point where his own people are rising up against him. They're making preparations to kill him. But all the time while he's receiving such animosity from his own people, people from other nations are keen to see him in person, the Jewish king that they've heard so much about. And it's precisely for this reason that Jesus knows that his hour has come. Because it's impossible for the Gentiles to be welcomed in unless he first dies. Let's just have a quick look back at John 12. 
Having said in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus then says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is the grain of wheat. He will die, and in dying, he will bear much fruit. See, only once Jesus has died will the news of him be spread by those first disciples. And as they spread that news, first to the Jews, eventually they will go out and speak to the Samaritans. At which point the gospel will continue to go out until the Gentiles hear of it as well. And when the Gentiles hear about the Jewish Messiah, it will cause them to praise God. They will hear of his salvation. They will seek to become part of the people of God. Because anyone who believes will be welcomed in. The Queen of Sheba was overwhelmed. How much more overwhelmed will be the Gentiles that hear of their salvation? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus understood by the visit of the Greeks that his time was now here. That his purpose to come was to bring your people together to you. First, people from your nation, your treasured possession, and then people from all nations to make up a multitude of people to dwell with you in the garden city of the new heavens and the new earth. So we pray, Lord, as we reflect on this, that we be greatly encouraged that your son came to die to reverse the effects of the fall and to bring all those who are yours back to you so that we might dwell with you for eternity. Amen. Well, I mentioned at the start that there'd be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments. Um, now that, that's now arrived. We normally get a chance to ask about three questions, depending on how long I take to answer them. Um, anything? Obviously, we've covered quite a bit there. I think for some of us, this will kind of be ground that we've covered before from a slightly different perspective. For others, this may be a little bit newer. And so obviously, if you want a question to clarify, if you want to hear further implications, or if you do want to talk about another part of the passage that we've ignored. Yes, Hannah. Um, you 
Good question, very helpful. So the question just for the recording is, did the Queen of Sheba um, serve God after that experience? Did she go away and remain um, a, a God-fearer? Or did she, after that experience, then just go home and continue to serve whatever God she was serving? Um... I mean, I guess you could answer the question and say we don't know, but I think we can do a little bit better than that. Um, I, I think what we're seeing as we go through the Old Testament is sort of clues and hints, and it's sort of beginning to paint this picture. You know, as we, as we go through, we start getting this sort of imagery of things that kind of hints at something greater. So if you remember when we talked a couple of weeks back about the idea of the Garden of Eden, the idea of the Garden of Eden was um, Adam and Eve would be in it, <clears throat> they would have children, their children would have children, their children would have children, and as they continued to have children, the garden wouldn't be big enough to um, fit everyone in, so the borders would have to extend until eventually the whole world would be filled. In that scenario, you've got the whole of the earth filled with God's image bearers reflecting his character perfectly. And that's kind of what the garden was meant to do, but that never happened. And so that's something that we're anticipating, the whole earth being filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now what we see then at this, I mean this, this truly is the high point of the Old Testament. Um, it's, you know, Everything that was anticipated in, with Abraham and with Moses is being realised. As far as it gets, it's only going to get worse from this point on. Just to, that's a complete spoiler. But what we're beginning to see is something of, it's just sort of that taste, it, it, kind of a glimpse of kings coming in and recognising that the God of Israel is great. But for them to actually worship God and become part of his people, they'd have to give up their kingdom and become an Israelite. You know, for that, for that fall, they'd, actually, you know, they'd have to bring their whole, all their people and undergo circumcision and all this sort of stuff and become an Israelite, which doesn't happen. You know, queen, the Queen of Sheba goes ahead so I think that's all we get in here, just that taste of um, when God's people behave as they're meant to and God's Messiah behaves as he's meant to, under God's rule, then people come and want to praise God. We then bring this into uh, the New Testament and you start to see this in full you know, and this is kind of like Technicolor. That's an old, outdated phrase, isn't it? That, or in Blu-ray. There we go. Um, you know, gone are the VHS, which you won't know what that is. Now we're in um, full, solid colour. And so, but it, again, there's still a bit of a, a teasing so that when the wise men come, they come and go. But it's given us a taste of what's going to happen. It's only weirdly when we get to Acts and... All of a sudden, uh, the 12 disciples, they believe, they understand, you know, Acts 2 is exciting, not because of the Spirit, but because of the Spirit's work. 
because now they know who Jesus really is. They were clueless before. Now they recognize him and believe. You know, they believe and then some. And then they head out into Samaria. And you've got this, the joining of the two kingdoms, which they haven't split yet, but they'll split. Again, another spoiler. But the, you get the joining of the new kings. And the Samaritans belong to the people of God. And then all of a sudden, the Gentiles belong to the people of God. And they believe. And all of and I mean, that's kind of what we're in now. The whole earth is full of the glory of God. In as far as it's hard to think of an area where the gospel hasn't reached. Um, you know, there are people from every nation. There isn't every nation and every person from every nation, but there is every people from every nation, at which point we anticipate the great multitude of Revelation uh, 7, where there will be that great multitude of people from all nations. So the short answer is, no, I don't think she was a believer. Uh, But... It's, it's, yeah, it's sort of teasing the implications out as opposed to just leaving it there. Time for another one. Um, I was wondering if you could expand on like John uh, 12, verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Yes, good question. Okay, let me have a quick look. So, 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So this is the striking thing, and I think it's one of those things that's overlooked by many Christians, um, is the sense that Jesus is literally about to lay down his life. And for him to achieve what he will achieve, he has to lay down his life. The thing that he often says to his believers, like in Mark 8, is take up your cross. Which is effectively, well, you have to lay down your life as well. Maybe not literally, but all those things that you put your confidence in here, um, all the securities that you have here, are not worth continuing to depend upon. You've got to forget all that and put your confidence in Jesus. Um, so there is a sense that, and I mean, one of the things that you see that I think Jesus is going to tease this out in John's Gospel as he continues on. So this idea that verse 18 of chapter 15, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they also keep yours. So if you love your life, well, you don't want to get involved in Jesus. Because that's got a real potential to bring heartache, suffering, and it's not an easy ride. You have to take up your cross and um, compromise at many levels if you're going to follow Jesus. But the reward is great. Because if you lose your life, i.e. take up your cross and follow Jesus, you achieve eternal life. 
So it's that um, eternal perspective. Suffer now, because the glory to come is so much greater. Time for one more, I think. Yes, Nathan. Go on, go on. Sorry, what was that? Which which chapter? Uh, chapter 10. 10 um, yep, cool. Oh, do you know, I was hoping I was going to get away without mentioning the horses. In fact, I was just ready to say, yes, no one's mentioned the horses. Okay. Go on, what's interesting? Yes, exactly. I mean, I don't know whether, how much to say because I think this could spoil next week. Um, but I've purposely avoided the horses and I've gone for the high, knowing full well that next week is an opportunity to go back and reflect on the horses. Not that I'm preaching, Adrian's preaching. Uh, so, so I could just spoil it now. And, and all right. But yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because we read horses and we think, oh, he's a king, he's got horses. And like, every, everyone loves a horse, don't they? That's great. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. What do you want me to do, Adrian? Shall I just leave it? We'll leave it there and you can pick it up next week. I don't know. Are you, were you thinking of mentioning horses next week? Mm-hmm. Not really. Okay. So horses. Horses, we read it and just think, it's a horse. What's wrong with having a horse? But it's almost like nuclear weapons, in those days, to have horses and to have chariots is to have a, a great arsenal. But the people of Israel did not re- need a great arsenal. They had something much, much better. They had the Lord, and he will fight your battles. It's something that David knew well. Sam, um, David and Goliath, a misunderstood, misunderstood story. The reason, the purpose for the story is not because you're small, and us small people can beat giants. Watch your giant. That's not the purpose of the story. The story is David knows that the Lord will fight for his people. He has nothing to fear because the Lord will fight for him. That's the, what they knew when they came out of Exodus. The Lord will fight for them. Which is why it's so pathetic that they weren't happy to go into the land. And that kept them another 40 years hanging around in the wilderness. Because the Lord was going to fight for them. You know, it's, it's, they're going to win. No problems. They don't need horses. They don't need chariots. So if you're investing in horses and chariots, it means you've got no confidence in the Lord. He is the one who will win. Yes, so it's not quite as positive as we've been making out. All is not well in the kingdom of Solomon. Should we leave it there? Okay. Um, We're going to now sing uh, King of Kings, Majesty.
And then we will finish with a reflection.